Consult the almanacs. We need a plan for this damn coronavirus. The fake coronavirus is real killing us at about 2,000 Americans a day, and we need to do something about that. It's called a hoax. Everything's called a hoax now, which is crazy because it seems to me, in my experience with literary hoaxes, that there's something humorous about them, and there's nothing humorous about the way we're processing this this term hoax or the way we're processing this virus in America right now. It's better in Europe. Remember when we thought that Europe was doing such a terrible job? So I think I'm going to get in my balloon and fly back there. There's a running joke in Kimmy Schmidt, which I think is a great Netflix show about rich people taking blimps. I don't even I don't even get it. Totally don't get it. It's a hoax. And it's a funny one too. Edgar Allan Poe, who we talked about in our election day special, has a group of stories called the Balloon Hoax, where he perpetrated a hoax. Poe claimed to uh have interviewed a guy named Monk Mason. He was a, a real guy, um, but he said he flew across the Atlantic in three days in a balloon. And then, you know, it was found out to be a hoax. After the veracity of the story was challenged or were undermined by the truth, Poe then later um, published chunks of the balloon hoax as a, um, as fiction, as literary fiction. It's an education of Little Tree situation. Do you remember that? Um, Asa Carter published this book as Forrest Carter in the 70s, and he claimed it to be true and autobiographical. He claims to be a Native American person, uh, recounting his, his experiences growing up as a Native person in Appalachia. Um, and then it turns out that uh, Asa Carter was a white supremacist, member of the Ku Klux Klan. And then he just uh, repackaged the book as fiction, and it continued to be well-received, I guess. The balloon hoax is a different situation, though, entirely, really, because as a piece of literary fiction, it still is a, a serious interrogation of, uh, of the nature of our relationship to science. And packaging it first as a hoax really uh, sets up that interrogation. Poe knew a thing or two about pulling off a hoax by giving specifics. He says that he interviewed Mason. He says that... Uh, the particulars furnished below may be relied upon as authentic and act accurate in every respect, as with the slight exception they are copied verbatim from the joint diaries of Mr. Monk Mason and Mr. Harrison uh, Ainsworth. It's, it's interesting because he, uh, the science he mentions uh, becomes real. I mean, you know, he, he, uh, he's on to something that uh, people have talked about it elsewhere at length that science fiction often becomes science fact. The beginning of the first article, he writes, the great problem is at length solved. The air, as well as the earth and the ocean, has been subdued by science and will become common and convenient highway, a common and convenient highway for mankind. The Atlantic has been actually crossed in a balloon, and this too without difficulty, without any great apparent danger. And through control of this machine, 
and in the inconceivably brief period of 75 hours from shore to shore. We now, of course, would re regard a 75-hour trip from South Carolina to France, I think is where they left from, I don't remember, actually, as the longest flight in the world. And in Poe's time, it was regarded as a fantastical, uh, vague possibility. So, you know, once again, as Poe is very aware, language invents the future. These hoaxes uh, very often had to do with technology. The pace of technological change in the 1840s, as now, was, was very rapid, and so people were always being made aware through newspapers and whatnot of new technologies that they didn't understand, so you could say that it did anything, you know, change votes or whatever. Of course, information technologies is always um, also an important part of this equation. You know, uh, in the 1840s when, when Poe is starting this, it's a great railroad building age, there are canals all over the place. Newspapers are flourishing. And maybe most important, in 1843, uh, uh, there's a, the first telegraph line laid from Washington to Baltimore. Poe's in Baltimore, and he's very concerned about the telegraph and, and what happens when information can be instantly transmitted across distances. How does that change the way we've processed, uh, thought about, and waited for information in the past? Poe seemed to recognize that the telegraph could both spread information quickly, uh, spread the truth quickly, or spread a lie quickly, and that other forms of communication, like printed text, would necessarily lag behind that. Print was self-contextualizing and thorough, but telegraph is quicker. For me, a useful way to think about the telegraph, uh, since it was so, it was coded and it was translated and it was brief, that it was information without context, which seems pretty uh, relevant to the way we're thinking about the internet social media age now. So the great age of the hoax, I guess, always happens on the shoulder of emerging, uh, more expanding technologies. These, of course, were, were often run anonymously or through pseudonyms, but not always. Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, you know, in uh, The Scarlet Letter, one of his great books, indulges in a minor literary hoax in the introduction or the Customs House uh, chapter of the novel. It's often taken out of the novel in, in editions, but it's a mistake to take it out because uh, the setting asks that we see this historical novel uh, relative to its current historical moment when it's published in 1850, and it's, to me, an essential part of the text. Among other things, it situates the text where he actually works at the Customs House in Salem, Massachusetts, um, and he claims to have found a packet of, of letters that included in it the actual scarlet letter. Not incidentally, by the way, one of Hawthorne's ancestors had to wear a scarlet eye for incest. Um, but anyway, he claims to have found it, and he, and he larders the story with some specific verifiable details. Um, so, you know, he says he found it in the custom house, which is kind of plausible. He said it was left there by a guy named Jonathan Pugh, a surveyor, who would have been a kind of minor government official, whose life would have been defined by and taken place in work, and he might have left behind 
private documents. Um, and he mentions that he's buried in the churchyard in Salem. And he is. So you can go find his grave. So you follow the directions left by Hawthorne in the, in the Customs House, the introduction to the Scarlet Letter, where he says, uh, In a newspaper of recent times, an account of the digging up of his remains in the little graveyard at St. Peter's Church during the renewal of that edifice. Um, nothing, if rightly, if I rightly call to mind, was left of my respected predecessor, saved an imperfect skeleton and some fragments of apparel and a wig of magic frizzle, which unlike the head of that it once adorned, was in very satisfactory preservation. But on examining papers, which the Par Parchment Commission re uh, served to envelope, I found more traces of Mr. Pugh's mental part and the internal operations of his head than the fizzled wig that contained of the venerable skull itself. There were documents, in short, not of an official but a private nature, or at least written in his private capacity. It's really an interesting image. I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the product of his head is still living, even though his head is gone. Um, seems to be a meditation on the nature of writing and uh, a conversation across time. But I guess more to the specific point, he's saying that he can know truth that's written privately and he can now publish it publicly, but that it's sort of like a, 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 you know, a secret that he's uncovered and that it's real. And that seems plausible, at least, because, you know, at the very least, you can go and see Surveyor Pew's gravesite. I've seen it many times. I used to walk by it every day on the way to the train. Hawthorne understands the basics of a truth functional logic assignment from a critical thinking class. The, the more true things you say the more likely your conclusion is to be true. So he just puts together, Poe puts together, these hoaxes put together, a string of truths, and then there's a, a leap to a conclusion that might be totally illogical and unrelated, but it'll seem related in proximity to these other true and verifiable things. The problem here is that anything could be true is surrounded by verifiable details and connected to a real place. Also, paradoxically, relative to our uh, contemporary hoaxes, is that the greater that leap, it seems the more believable it is to a certain group of people. Place and regional stereotypes also factor into the way people process this. In Poe's balloon hoax landed, it landed on a remote island outside of Charleston. When Orson Welles, uh, you know, did his War of the Worlds broadcast, he read part of a H.G. Wells novel um, on the radio, and he made it seem like a live broadcast, though apparently there were, you know, warnings about its, uh, its, uh, its being fictional. Um, but the, you know, the spaceship from Mars apparently landed out in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, somewhere. It'd be difficult to go and verify the location of that, you know, particularly in, on uh, Halloween in 1938. What's interesting, though, about the H.G. Wells' War of the World things, there, there were all kinds of stories about people leaping out of windows and running around in terror. In William Kennedy's great novel, Ironweed, there's a, there, it's, it's set 
partly on October 31st in 1930. And people are running around and people are trying to figure out what's going on. People are going crazy and, and, and uh, you know, they're reacting to the Orson Welles broadcast. But it's not real clear that people did freak out or it's pretty clear that no one died despite reports of mass hysteria and people leaping out of windows and dying. A few years ago, uh, PBS did a really great show, historical examination of the, of the fallout of War of the Worlds. And uh, most of the scholars contend that there was no panic at all, that, it, that there was no mass panic, that people didn't freak out and people didn't die, and that the story about the story was actually a bigger hoax than the story itself. That seems particularly relevant to the sort of echo chamber, closed loop thinking and reporting that we get involved in now. There's a nothing story that gets amplified by reiteration until it becomes a story. These hoaxes were often designed to take the stuffing out of pretentious people, though. Uh, you know, the story of the Jersey Devil, which you might have heard about, was a story that developed in the family of Daniel Leeds, who uh, started one of the first popular almanacs. Almanacs were a really popular, uh, you know, uh, form of reading material um, early in, in America, early in the Republic and before that, starting in the 1680s, really. Um, and anyway, uh, they were like the Farmer's Almanac now. They were full of astrological predictions and homespun wisdom. And uh, the, the Leeds family's almanac was quite popular at the time. Now, I think uh, it's just a footnote to Benjamin Franklin who satirized them. Benjamin Franklin, who was, you know, a, a proponent of real science, he was a scientist himself, um, created Poor Richard's Almanac, adopting the, the guise of a, of a simple country, man was henpecked by his wife and he would give homespun wisdom, which is often sometimes, you know, not without a certain amount of uh, intellectual integrity, I guess, though I'm a simple country person myself. Uh, but anyway, he uh, kind of went to war with Daniel Leeds' son, Titan Leeds, who became the next, um, you know, member of the family to inherit and, and, uh, and write the almanac. And so... Uh, Franklin wanted to take the stuffing out of him because he thought that he pretended to a level of sort of like a scientific understanding that he didn't have. He thought he was pretentious, thought he was a bit of a stuffed shirt. So uh, poor Richard used his astrological calculations to predict that Titan Leeds would die in 1733. One of the interesting elements of a hoax, again, uh, you know, the specific details you know, a pizza shop in D.C. or whatever, make it seem true. So anyway, it's not enough to say that Titan Leeds would die, you know, in 1733. He had to arrive at a precise calculation that on October 17th, 733, 1733, at 3.29 p.m., at the very instance of the conjunction of the Sun and Mercury, Titan Leeds, the almanacker, will fall dead. When he didn't, Leeds was running around saying, hey, I ain't dead. But Franklin actually insisted that he did die 
and that somebody else had stolen his name and was now publishing as Titan Leeds when the real Titan Leeds was lying a moldering in the grave. It was also Franklin, Franklin's tactic to appear cheerfully, uh, you know, uh, enamored of Titan Leeds so that it didn't seem like he was being motivated by spite. He says that he wouldn't have published his almanac in 1733 um, because he didn't want to harm uh, Titan Leeds' uh, publication. He says, Mr. Titan Leeds, whose interest I was extremely unwilling to hurt, but this article, I am far from speaking it with pleasure, is soon to be removed since inexorable death who may never know to respect merit, has already prepared the mortal dart of faithful sister, has already extended her destroying shears, and that ingenious man must soon be taken from us. He dies by my calculation made on his request on October 17th, 1733, three hours, 39, 29 minutes p.m. You know, of course, he doesn't die... When he real dies a few years later in uh, 1738, Franklin publicly comes out and comments that he's glad that the people who were posing as Titan leads and sullying the good man's name have given up their hopes and let the poor boy rest in peace. It's all pretty harmless because it's obvious that it's a type of theater. Titan Leeds, everyone knows, is alive and well. He's still publishing. Their little back and forth is uh, kind of charming and kind of fun. The truth in this instance is uh, fairly easily ascertained. What is both exciting and frightening about the hoax is that it's possible to write the future into existence. It's possible to make an untruth true. When Franklin attacks Titan Leeds, Titan Leeds is the is the famous person, and uh, Franklin is trying to break into the almanac business by attacking the king of the almanac business, and he succeeds in doing it. People then start to read Poor Richard. It puts his name on the map. And then now, Titan Leeds is nobody. Titan Leeds is a footnote to Franklin. Poe writes about crossing the Atlantic in an airplane or in a, in a balloon, and now we cross it regularly in an airplane. There's a difference, though, between telling a story that puts an object in the distance as a waypoint to look toward in the future and working toward that future and a conspiracy or a hoax that attempts to undermine and replace what we know actually happened in the past. Franklin ultimately is trying to launch a new type of almanac. Hawthorne is trying to undo uh, a kind of residue of puritanical judgment um, that he sees still in his culture in 1850. Poe is asking that we think about emerging technologies and that we don't lose our humanity in our rush to embrace them. And I think that in general, it's the job of art to look forward and put out that 
shiny object that we reach towards as we try to evolve into a better and a different culture. And to misrepresent and control the past is, I would say, a fundamentally different exercise. And though we've called these other efforts literary hoaxes in the past, I think in a way they're not literary hoaxes. They're um, creating an aspirational document like the Declaration of Independence, for instance, it gives us some things to shoot for that we can't possibly carry off in the world that we have. And yet, to a certain extent, we have tried, have succeeded, and continue to try to invent that future for ourselves. And I hope we're getting closer to it. Friends, be well. Take care. Hang in there. And I'll see you next week.